0: You don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Boys and girls, it's Greg and Rick. Now, the difference is Rick is sitting in sunny California. I'm here with a flamethrower and a snow shovel, and it's uh, an ungodly temperature. So much for uh, Al Gore, is global warming. But all I can tell you is, Rick, you made the right choice where to spend your old age.
1: Well, you know, we are having a cold snap here. Um, I, I, the door is open, and as you can yeah, see. It's you guys don't step.
0: understand Cold snap. It's a cold snap. It's sixty
1: three <laughs> right now. I'm, oh my god, I'm freezing. You know.
0: Well, this is the February issue of Risk Management Monthly, February two thousand fifteen. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up, and the uh, and uh, Rick, why don't you kick it off with a little discussion on the process of providing information?
1: Well, you know, before I, w- I before we th- get into that, I did want to give some. Uh, previews of coming attractions. Can we do that? We we're plugging crap now, right? Well, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. first of all, we got an interview with Graham Billingham coming up. You and I are going to do it this Friday, but it's going to be broadcast a little bit later in March. But, yes. But Graham is like has become the superstar. Of risk management, not only in emergency medicine, he's the chief medical officer for MedPro, which ensures over 120,000 providers, hospitals, doctors, dentists, nurse practitioners, you name it. And Graham is the number two guy there. I went onto their website. MedPro is, uh, as you may know, a Warren Buffett company. Uh, Yes, it is. Very much so. So Graham basically probably has an office down the hall from Warren, and they probably get, get together for cheeseburgers. And what is he? Is he like Dr. Pepper? Is that what he drinks?
0: Yeah, something like and that. S- and by the, by the way, he lives in Omaha, Nebraska.
1: Well, I think, so- <laughs> I, I think Graham is still up in, uh, in the Sacramento area. Uh, he, he's smarter than living in Omaha. But yes. in any case, we're looking forward to that. That's a big one coming up. The other one coming up is Mike Weinstock, who is, by the way, the lead author on uh, um, the Bounce Back series, and they're coming out with their third book uh, called Bounce Back Pediatrics. And of all people, you seem to be one of the authors of this thing.
0: I am indeed, sir. I I was wondering if you'd mention that. I mean, you're mentioning uh, uh, young Dr. Weinstock. And uh, yes, I've been in all three books, and they've still kept me on board. And again, I'm I'm the guy who gets to kibitz on these cases. Yeah, yeah. talk about it afterwards. I'm like the old men in, in, up in the balcony on the Muppet Show, <laughs> and and I I get to just kind of say whatever I want.
1: It's a great job, Rick. Well, you know, I have to be very candid, maybe I shouldn't be, but I, I you know, I'm not a I'm not a big reader, um, and so frankly, I've never read any of the other Bounceback books. You know, I've had access to them, but I haven't read them. And it's just kind of i I had a certain um, view of what they were probably, you know, there were just cases that came back to the ER and, you know, here's how we screwed up kind of thing. And um, I uh, I looked at this one. I get a little preview of it. It's coming out in March. So it's not out yet. But I, I, I to tell you the truth, I cannot believe how good it is. No. It, he
0: uh, listen, I'm not talking about my work. I'm talking No, no, not yours your, at all. I was gonna basically yeah, say Yeah, it. I, I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> so I'll just take that hit. But uh he has put together some fantastic cases. And for our listenership, which are you know, weird guys who are and gals who are into medical legal cases. This is like a uh, a thrill thrill seeking book. You mean it it's a page turner. I well, you know, i buy this one.
1: So Mike Weinstock is the elite author. Kevin Clower is there and this doctor Madeline uh Matar Joseph, who I don't know, but she's a a Peds, EM kind of person out of I think Jacksonville basically, very yes. seasoned that's written seventy papers. But, but i not any gonna case- like
0: her, Rick, because she's the one who says children are
1: not Little adults. Well, they have no choice. They have to say that, you know, they're they kicked out of the union. Right, right, but exactly. It, but in any case, let me tell you, I, I went through this. She does these ten clinical tips, and one of the things that you know anybody can give ten clip tips. We do that all the time, ten tips, you know, kind of thing. But right. this lady's got like reference after reference. I can't get over how many references there are in this book. Kevin does a section on risk management. He's got some references. But these cases, they got 28 cases, and then they have these discussions. And some of these di- cases, they're discussions, probably 15, 20 references supporting. Th- so it's not just people, you know, spouting off. The only person who gets to spout off without any references is you. <laughs> uh,
0: and, 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 and believe me, I have no problem in doing that. And I thank them for allowing me to continue to say things without real work. Uh, or backup. So that's that's perfectly fine. Anyway, but, uh, I have yeah. to
1: tell you I I was um I was very, very impressed and I, I'm not impressed particularly easily. Um Greg, while we're on that section, why don't we do this paper from the abstracts on bounce backs? It's right on page uh, two of our, our notes there, because I thought this is a kind of a, a nice little um opportunity to talk about them in a more generic fashion. And I found this study, obviously, in emergency medical abstracts, that I thought was actually pretty cool. Uh, Do you want to go through that? Yeah, this is the one from UCLA, Rick.
0: Uh, And I want you to listen to this number. They looked at the data from 5 million, over 5 million ED visits uh, by adults, from 288 emergency departments in California in the year 2007. Now, that's over half the EDs in California. I think California has something around 500. So this is a big number. And 5 million has got to be a statistically valid number. I would so if say we, so. Yeah, so if we looked at admissions within one week of ED discharge – and as you know, all of us live in fear of, for two reasons, the return visit, are the feds even going to pay for those things these days? And did we miss something bad that a little time in the hospital would have helped? Is that a
1: fair statement? Isn't that what we're really interested in here? Yeah, and, and, we are. Yeah. And, and and the thing about this is we're talking about <clears throat> admissions to mm-hmm. the hospital. This is not, well, they came back to the ER and uh, they need a dressing change. These are people- yeah who were admitted to the hospital within one week of a a discharge from a California uh, ED. Well, if they look at the multivariant analysis, uh, it's what you'd expect.
0: Patient characteristics uh, were those people, the bounce backs, were those people of increasing age. If you were 40 to to, uh, uh, 59, it was about 3% of people came back again within a week. If you're over 80, it's 5.5%.
1: Yeah, that's like 1 in 18 will be back and admitted within a week.
0: Well, you see, somebody might think that this is uh, illegal, immoral, fattening, something like that. I think this is intelligent use of our resources. You're right. Some people are going to come back, and you and I... Uh, until we become clairvoyant, are not going to know which ones of those patients it is. So when I saw those numbers, I was actually reassured by that, Rick. I I don't think we're doing a bad job.
1: Greg, this is entitled Risk Management Monthly. A lot of these people who come back and are admitted within a week – probably ought to have been admitted the first time, and now their process is a little worse. And so now it's obvious you have to come into the hospital. Yeah,
0: but it's obvious on the second visit. You know, Rick, we've talked about this, that there is the index case that you and I will never diagnose certain diseases the first
1: time they walk hey,
0: into our emergency We're department.
1: talking about 5%, 1 in 20, yeah. 1 in 18. This is yeah. not like a rare event. Well, all it points out is that...
0: that, that the sliding scale heads toward us old guys and that uh, you're more likely above the age of 50 that you're going to be showing up but but I think that that's uh, I I don't think that's so bad now let's also look at a couple other things there are a few diagnoses which are seen a little more but what I was surprised at Rick is how evenly spread it was the fact that the diagnosis itself isn't that near as important as what the patient well, looked like.
1: You know, this is one of those huge database jobs and the only thing they're looking at in terms of of diagnosis is uh, ICD-9 codes and so that's not particularly helpful. You know, but one number that I do think needs to be focused on is overall be, be young, the old, the the Medicaid patients, the alcoholics, the left without BC, whatever it was. The, the number is 2.6%. One in 40 patients who is discharged from a California ED in 2007 was admitted within one week. One in 40. Yes. So talk about bounce back. As a matter of fact, this paper is entitled, Factors Associated with Short-Term Bounce Back Admissions After Emergency Department Discharges. Dr. Do- uh, Gabayan, Dr. B- Gabayan. Goodbye and I'm sorry I don't know you, Doctor, but as you can tell the way I'm messing up your name here. This was in Annals of Emergency Medicine in two thousand and thirteen. And I the thing I thought was kind of cool is it had the word bounce back in the title. And, yes. And now is this the property of Mike Weinstock, the term bounce back? Does this No, I, I don't think you we everybody's
0: <laughs> has used that in common parlance. He can't at this point in time uh, patent I thought he the term bounce back. Term. I don't think uh, okay.
1: so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to the uh, things that we were starting off with. And, you know, I, I ran into some stuff regarding physicians giving uh, information to patients because, you know, we do histories and physicals and we give treatment and all this other stuff. But one of the parts of the things that we do as physicians is to give phys- uh, patients information. And part of that is. I wanna get into two things. One of it is this business about shared decision making. Shared decision making. And this is one of those things which ER physicians are going to say, if I hear that term one more time, I'm gonna spit.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, <laughs> Rick, it's it's a good we're separated by uh, twenty four hundred miles because shared I'd be real mad about this.
1: Well, listen, you know, this is the idea where patients get involved in making decisions about their care and this is really, really, really from the world of primary care where you ask patients, listen, do you want to have a PSA test? And because we know the literature on that is basically some say don't do it. So it's one of those things where you, it's kind of appropriate for the physician to say, here's the things that you should know about it. Yes, one way or the other. Or do you want to take statins for the rest of your life? Um while the number that needed a treat to prevent one cardiovascular event is over 200 for five years taking these pills kind of thing yeah. or testosterone replacement or do you want a mammogram kind of thing or all of these things which we kind of assumed ah, everybody does it, everybody knows this all of them are coming up with well not so fast there's, there's some reasons not to do these things and some reasons to do them and I guess the issue is well does this apply to emergency medicine and the well, answer is let, let, come go on. ahead, go, 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 go ahead. You're, go. Let's,
0: let's be fair here. Um, I think our job is more than say, "Well, you want you want it with cheese, without cheese." They came to us for some kind of direction on this. I, I like to say to them, "I'm your healthcare advisor. I'm going to give you kind of what we're doing
1: out there now. (laughs) This is that paternalistic old fart point of view that I was expecting to come right right out of you.
0: Exactly right. And what I say is, we used to do this, but in your case, there's not much reason for this anymore. And here's some data. Same way with on something like uh, mammography. There's all kinds of good data to say if it's not in your family, and you're of a certain age and you've had two normals, why in the world do you need another uh, mammogram well,
1: in the next five years? Well, that's also true of pap smears kind of thing. So um, Absolutely. And uh, and yet, when you look at the literature, we have papers in our database where women who have had hysterectomies are still getting pap smears. I don't know what they're smearing, but they're still getting pap smears because these doctors are like, I don't know. But, yeah, but- and, and the it's not the same kind of discussion,
0: I don't think. With someone in a family practice office talking about statins, uh, as opposed to me in the emergency department when they've got a a cut and a small pumping arteriole, I'm not going to sit there and say, well, some people would use plain (laughs) lidocaine at this time. I tend to be a Marcane guy with epinephrine, and here are the reasons. I I mean – where we, where does
1: this become ridiculous? I can, I can right? sense that your blood pressure is starting to go up. I can well, sense that. I it, don't want to be responsible for any, any kind of O-ring blowout going on yeah, here.
0: If, if I slip below the table and stop talking, okay. But I think there are reasonable things for a family practitioner's office. One of them, for sure, is the question of blood glucose control in diabetics. sure. Because we went nuts with this. Yeah,
1: we were, everybody was testing it. You know, three times a day. Wil- Wilford Brimley was going to send you the supplies to to, to do it because you were covered by Medicare. But but let me let me kind of make a little transition to emergency medicine, where right. this may be uh, applicable. Like, you know, does does Johnny need a CAT scan of his head, doctor? Well, you know, basically you are going to give them some information, and based on that information, they're going to say, okay, that sounds reasonable, or right. or. Will antibiotics help Mary's ear infection? Yeah. And then, you, you know, then there's some information that you can give to say, to tell you the truth, most patients will get no benefit from this whatsoever. Uh, what cough syrups do you recommend? Do I need an ankle uh, x-ray? I know I have a sprain, but I, do I need an x-ray? Well, what's the, what's the likelihood of a fracture? Do I need an x-ray? Sutures or or or, 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 or glue? Here, here, here are the options we can do pros and cons of doing a cathua in your little febrile baby. Uh, Do you want to do that or not? Here's the the pros and cons.
0: Let's, let's, however, in all fairness, when you and I sit down with a patient, we have a, you and I have looked at literature for 40 years. We have a prejudice about what we want to do. I don't want the average kid who's looking normal neurologically after he fell off his bike, getting a CT scan of his head. And so I will I will convey that information, but I think it's almost um, kicking the can down the road to say, well, your choice. I mean, if you want to fry your kid's brain with, uh, with radiation, okay by me. I mean, I think we got to be a little bit directive here, Rick, or you know what? Well, the habits aren't going to change. I, the habits yeah. of ordering, doing testing,
1: we have to feel comfortable with this, don't we? Yes, we do. And I think that, so I think there are lots of examples where um, parents can get involved and help make the decisions as long as they know the consequences, which gets to the medical legal point I wanted to focus on you, doctor, because I don't think we've ever talked about detrimental reliance.
0: Um, yes. Are you familiar
1: with that concept?
0: I, I, I am, as a matter of fact. And it's one that if you uh, have a room full of lawyers, will somebody come up? With, with a, uh, an unreasonable thing to talk about in court for the rest of, uh, of our existence. The answer is yes. They'll come up with lots of them. But detrimental reliance for the, for the folks listening who don't know about this is if you give a patient some information that's wrong and they don't use that in their decision making or they ignore it, probably no harm done. If you give them some information which is incorrect and they depend on that to make a decision, then you are in trouble. Here, uh, they may, there may be a legitimate uh, basis for suit. For example, the, the, um, the general surgeons, did they talk about doing, uh, taking off both breasts in, in a woman who has uh, advanced um, carcinoma? Uh, did they really know that data? When did they do it? And I think, Rick, our management of disease has changed over the years. It's not, it's what we know at that moment in time.
1: Well, you know, I think that it, there are certainly examples in emergency medicine where we give out information where we kind of weigh stuff in terms of, well, Doc, what's the risk of uh, Johnny having a strep throat here, because it says, you know, you said, you know, I, you don't think necessar- uh, penicillin is necessary. And you could say, well, to tell you the truth, Mr. Smith, I think it's probably less than, you know, uh, 25% that he has it. And the reasons being is, he's got no exudates, no fever, no adenopathy. And uh, he is, is, he is, he's coughing. And because of these factors, we know statistically that this is li- not likely to be a strep throat. So in my view, based on what I've read, I can tell you it's unlikely that Johnny has a strep throat. So but it's cheap. the drug is cheap, doctor, and uh, there's really no harm from penicillin. That may be, but I'm going to give you a number that basically helps you put this in perspective. I'm going to say this is it's unlikely that Johnny has a sore throat. Now, if in fact that information is incorrect, incorrect. and and there's all kinds of things that we need to know about. What's the likelihood of this fever being caused by a urinary tract in this two-year-old girl? Well, there's all kinds of risk factors, and you could say, well, the the likelihood is really quite small based on this, 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 and this, and so I think we do need to know information that helps quantify risk. Uh, This well, when Just, we say, you don't need an x-ray of your ankle because of this, 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 and this, the likelihood of a fracture of the ankle is very, very small. Or you can present
0: it a positive way, which is, I don't think you need it now. We're going to put you on crutches. In 10 days to two weeks, if you still have pain, we're going to get the right study. <laughs> I think that's what... To, no, I'm serious. If you're talking about a wrist, which most people, after two days, take the damn splint off and And forget about it now we're out of ten days, and uh, you've left them at a splint to me, the study of choice if I really wanted to know if I need to do anything would be a, a an MRI at that point, not a uh, a plain x-ray not a CT it would be an MRI wouldn't it Rick
1: no statistically no no, no. all we care about in ankles is that is it a is it a fracture or no fracture? Yes, we know it's ligamentous tear by the fact that it's a sprained ankle but that now that's a little different, and and it's interesting that you bring this up because this is one of the discussions, actually in the course that's coming up. You and I, unfortunately, somebody's got to do this, Greg. You and I have to go to Maui in two weeks. Oh no! <laughs> yes, I'm. Not I'm going to drag you out of that Michigan, you know, uh, permafrost that you live in. I on. remember
0: when that that course
1: used to have a cruise, but no.
0: Not anymore. But we, go ahead. We actually
1: we have a very nice turnout uh, this year. For um, well, actually we have a very nice turnout for a bunch of our courses. But anyway, we had like, about 130 people there. And one of the issues that that I'm going to be talking about is uh, w- what is the um, role of MR versus versus CT in, in the emergency department. And I think this knee thing is a great example. In in these what. When somebody comes in with a blown-out knee and it's it, it, and it's and it's got a big effusion, the the we we don't really care whether it's got it, yes we, if it's got a fracture yes fine we want to know about it but the fact is that the vast majority of those injuries are going to be ligamentous or cartilage injuries and we won't see those on plain X-rays and so the X of the imaging modality of choice in that situation where by far the most likely problems are going to be ligamentous. Is an MRI, not a plain film, and yeah, and I'm not gonna, necessarily that night. Well, you I'm going to make the, it I'm going to make the case uh, when we're there that uh, I think we need to have a lower threshold for doing the appropriate study because I can tell you, as an example, in that case, when you splint that guy and send that guy to the orthopedist, the first thing that orthopedist is going to do is get an MRI in his MRI machine, which is right down in his hall. Right. Exactly. Well, um, so anyway, that was an interesting. Paper. Um, you want to do some letters? I got a couple of letters here. Yeah,
0: let's st- let's start on some letters. I, I got a I, I got one this morning too, which I'm going to throw in here. Let me get it. Go ahead. Uh,
1: Jim Lorenzano <laughs> wrote to us regarding our interview with Dr. Waxman. It's interesting because actually, Dr. Waxman is the author of this paper that basically showed that. Um, Drastic malpractice reform had no effect on physician ordering in the emergency department. None, uh, zero. And uh, yeah, and we interviewed him, and uh, and last I think it was the last issue, and uh, he actually I didn't know it, but he wrote a he, a long article I think in ASEP now. Um, but in any case, we scooped him because we got this interview. In any case, but and um, but Lorenzano basically said. Man, what a waste of Dr. Waxman's time. I can tell you for sure that this was going to be the case. He didn't need to do this study. And he then goes on to cite his experience. We don't need no (laughs) no friggin' study. We know this. Well, you know, I can certainly... I would have bet money on the outcome of this study based on uh, other things that would suggest that it's true. But But Jim basically says, I've been in the VA... I've been in the military. You cannot sue us in the VA for all practical purposes, and you can definitely not sue us in the military. And the fact of the matter is is that physicians were ordering machines based on his experience in those two environments where, in fact, you cannot get sued uh, for all practical oh. pr- You have to be an axe murderer.
0: Well, you, they have to go through something called the Federal Tort Claims Act, but uh, in one of the cases I'm going to give you uh, today, it was in a um, military-related hospital, and it was one of the largest uh, awards in the history of California.
1: Well, I'll be darned. Hey, listen, and- I, there's there's a... There's a one of these for you here. I, you know the name of this person, but I'm not, I can't, I'm not at liberty to tell it because I didn't ask whether it was okay or not, and it doesn't really have anything to do with, with really risk, risk management, but I thought that you ought to have your two cents into this one because I know that this would also get your blood pressure up.
0: Go ahead. Just read the letter.
1: Well, this is the one about frustration over perceived lack of productivity of PAS in his department, and this this fellow wanted some strategies to get them to to, to help move the meat. Now that's my phrase, not his, and I don't I never like that phrase, but I don't I used it anyway.
0: You know so- what? I I don't mind the phrase because we understand its limitations, but I think. Um, but it's not like, very humane and charitable, and it doesn't portray yeah, patients that are very don't positive become light. warm and fuzzy now on me, Rick. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough you're becoming demented. I don't want you warm and fuzzy. Uh, but, but the uh, thing really is, I, I think that the PAS have to be judged just like the docs. I.e., we can look at what is generated by their work, and there needs to be some reflection of that in the uh, in the payment
1: model. Well, that's and, it. That's interesting. It's because that's exactly what I said it, it this is a situation where the PAs are um, uh employees of a large um multi-contract emergency department group and uh he wanted to incentivize them and uh basically I'm sure the docs are incentivized by some process and it was like, "Well, why don't you consider doing something similar for the uh, for the PAs?" But I guess I don't know whether what the laws are about employees and what you know what you can do or an independent contract and all that stuff but but all that taken aside, if you could, you would certainly want to incentivize them. The other thing you can do, the first step I would
0: take is every month
1: we publish
0: the productivity the uh the, the billable units or whatever it is we use to measure. They're called RVUs. RVUs. You remember and that? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And put them up on the backboard in the emergency department with the doctor's name on them.
1: Well, or, there, there's the PAs. And,
0: well, but the PAs can be thrown into that group as well. I think doctors need to see what other people are doing and producing. I think that we tend to work and are incentivized by the people around us. If you honestly know that PA uh, uh, Mary Smith actually kicks out 2.5 patients per hour, you'd feel a little bad if every month you're coming up at 1.8. I mean, there ought to be some consistency here. Now, I don't know why I'm asking for consistency because we don't have it in anything else. But uh, what do you think about that, Rick? Just
1: show them what they do. Well, I think that's a good start for sure. I think everybody likes to be don't they? Don't want to be outliers on the bell shaped curve. They, everybody, there's this move towards the middle of the curve uh, on right. either end. And I, so I, I'm a firm believer that showing people the data and not saying a word, don't say a word, and right. uh, there will be this movement towards towards the middle. But I do also think that, um, you know, this came up actually at our hospital. Um, well. Uh, we wanted to do something to incentivize the nurses, but the nurses, and you know, in terms of bonuses or something to that effect, kind of thing, uh, or 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 some—I don't know—that the proper term would be bonuses. But it was some kind of financial recognition of of their help, and the hospital went uh, berserko over our plan to do that because they said nope, if you do this in the emergency department, this will be a precedent. And what about the nurses in the ICU? And what about the nurse in labor and delivery? And what about these nurses and that and those, those nurses? And so they said, we cannot have that. We have to have everybody on a level playing field, and we don't do it, and you can't do it, even though if you want to give them money, you can't do it. By the way, in private, they all know which of their compatriots
0: are, are uh, carrying the load and which ones are not. Oh, yeah, and, Absolutely. Uh, and, and they feel bitter about it. Uh, and, and don't be uh, don't be surprised at that. We have one more letter here, uh, again from uh, Chuck Pennick, who's a uh, uh, a longtime listener, and he comments, uh, Rick, Greg, I teach the EM section for the PA program at James Madison University, and one of the lectures I give is on malpractice prevention in the ED. For that lecture, I draw on what I've learned from you two. My, t- my two cents, uh, my director, and uh, my years on the state malpractice review panel. At the end of the lecture, he does a 10 ways to avoid malpractice. And he um, ge- gives us a list here, the 10 things. I, I don't think we need to go through them. But they're all things which we can all agree with. I guess the real question is, if we can all agree with this, and agree that these things are causing malpractice, why can't we get people to change behavior? I.e., headache, how did it start? We couldn't have we can't have more literature that says you're twenty times more likely to have a subarachnoid if the pain went from beginning to maximal in one minute.
1: Or or, or or less, actually.
0: Or less. Why wouldn't you have that on every headache chart? I don't know why, but we seem to have to reteach this stuff at a sort of an unpleasant level. It's it's like all the things we've seen with uh, back pain, and nobody's ever checked their sensation in the areas that are actually affected by the uh, lower lumbar and and uh, uh, sacral you mean, roots. You mean
1: you want me to stick my finger around their butthole? No, right. thank you, sir. <laughs> exactly. I'll just ask.
0: <laughs> the other, I, I like one of his ten points is. If it's an unpleasant encounter, start over. I think that's right. We've all gotten into it with a patient at some point where we need to just go out in the hallway, take a deep breath, come in and say, you know what? I don't think we're understanding each other at this moment. Let's try it. Well, you
1: know, there's also other alternatives. I I think during your and my career, we worked, well, I worked exclusively where there was one doctor in the department. It was me. Mm-hmm. Everything was unanimous. Yes, yes. <laughs> but but I can also envision you know hospitals, the departments where there are multiple providers, and when things are not going well, maybe one of the better things to do is to say, listen, it, it's it's clear we've kind of gotten off on the wrong tra- wrong track. I, I, I'm going to bring in one of our other doctors and 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 and. In, in in an attempt to kind of right. start over and get this on an even keel. It's
0: Dr. Hun, Attila the Hun. Yes. And he'll be in to uh, ask the questions next. Yeah, Mr. And nice if, Guy. If you see his hand going for that whip, be careful. No, well, I think anyway. that that's
1: an option to consider. Uh wasn't one of the options that was available to us, that's for sure. Right.
0: No, no, it wasn't. Uh, let me tell you that the I, we're happy to hear uh, from Chuck and – Any of the other readers who want their top 10 sent in, we're happy to look at it because I think that there's as much collective wisdom out there that will come up with new and different things that they teach or that that they put forward. Uh, The truth of the matter is I'm a better doctor after I've taught one of the risk management courses because it's revaccinated me. I've thought about all those
1: things again and uh, it is useful. And hey, listen, uh, uh, you got any more there you want to do or we'll move on? I'm not, nope. I'm open to it. Nope. We've passed the letters. All Let's right. Let's go. So um, Amo uh, likes it when we review articles. Now, see, uh, we don't way, even... He's... Who is this guy? We, Come on. This is like share. We don't need to name, have a last name. There's, I know that. There's only one Amo in emergency medicine. Yep. Uh, so everybody knows who he is. And basically, he writes us nice notes. He actually... He actually seems to like what the heck we do here. Yeah. But in any case, he says, I like it when you guys review articles. And he sent us uh, two suggestions. One of them was entitled, What Emergency Physicians Should Know About Informed Consent? That was one of the suggestions. Uh, It just so happens that Greg Moore and Peter Moffat were the two of the four authors on that paper who we, auth- who we interviewed specifically about this paper. So um, we cannot do any more than get to the authors and speak to them about their papers. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and following your letter, we did it the exact next month. That's as fast as we come. We don't publish daily, Amo, So uh, we're hoping that this is like the speed well, of
1: light to you. He also had a second uh, suggestion. It was entitled Ethical Seminars, A Best Practice Approach to Navigating the Against Medical Advice uh, Discharge by Mark Clark, Gene Abbott, who you know. Yep. And uh, you know the uh, this last doctor? Uh, it's actually, the last one. person's a lawyer. Greg, why don't you help us out with their name there? Can you, can you read the. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ty, that was Tara Yeah. Adyantalia. Tara Adyantalia. There you go. Close well, enough. Well,
0: that, that, that may be it. Uh, but I just think we ought to, as a gift to her for Christmas, send her some consonants <laughs> to stick in that name <laughs> because it's hard wanna, to pronounce. You want to buy a vowel? Um, buy a vowel, right. Hey, exactly.
1: So what I thought we would do, I did get that paper out, and I summarized it here on our, our mutual set of notes <laughs> to see whether there's any kind of... We covered this topic ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. Uh, but I wanted to see whether there were some things in here that we had not covered. And actually, I thought that there were, uh, were a few. Um, so, well,
0: well um, a couple. I, I'm glad to see that they finally decided that the capacity is the number one issue, particular after a, a case we're going to review again shortly. Uh, the capacity is more important than anything else on that chart. Would you say they are able to make a reasonable decision? Uh, and and they don't have to make a reasonable decision, but do they have the capability? Uh, as I said, I, I think we said one time on here, There's a place for people who think they can make reasonable decisions and often don't. That's called the stock market. (laughs) Every day, perfectly uh, rich people make perfectly bad decisions in the stock market. But it's free
1: choice. Let me go down their boats because, yes. Determining the patient's decision making capacity, we don't need any kind of specific, uh, you know, uh, psychological test. This is based on your professional medical judgment based on asking some questions. If you think capacity is an issue, we're going to get into that a little bit more in a second they want to balance protection of patient's autonomy with the prevention of harm there's a big this is a whole article i mean this is not like a you know a, a one pager where they get into this issue of patient autonomy to a level uh, that i personally was not aware of so we're going to expand on that a bit three provide the best alternatives for patients who decline some some or all of the proposed treatment and i think right. one one of the things that comes up is the person who wants to decline just one portion of it. No, I don't want a rectal kind of thing or no, I don't want to do this, uh, the NG tube, which is probably the smartest decision that patients made. <laughs> right. Um, and then we get into this thing where we're still able to treat these people. We just acknowledge that they've declined a, a, a portion of the uh, a, a test or a procedure. We've told them the um, benefits and harms associated with it, and they've, and they've made a rational decision. No, thank you. That doesn't mean you throw them out of the department. We've covered and that before. We, we've we've recorded that in the chart. This is what
0: I wanted. That was explained. They declined uh, and had the capacity to decline.
1: And we go, go and go. We keep on moving on. Then the number fourth is negotiate to encourage patients to stay. Well, we always do that. They want you to clearly make it clear that you've done that. Yes. Plan for subsequent care and document what transpired in this process. I, in, I couldn't, I couldn't g- agree more with this list. This is the summary of what we've talked about, Rick. Well, they go over two cases. They present two cases. One right. of them, a, a 44-year-old a patient with DKA who presents with pneumonia after being, uh, and they obviously they want to admit this lady, pH is 715, pretty sick. She stays in the ER 8 hours, 8 hours in the emergency department. And you say be, that like that's unusual. I think it's embarrassing. Well, it, it may but, not be unusual, but it is embarrassing.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of people on who are listening to this where an 8-hour stay for
1: a DKA or would not be unusual, Rick. Well, I understand that it doesn't mean it's right. And, right, and, and, you know, of course. um and uh, those of you who uh, listen to or read Emergency Physicians Monthly, look at the most recent issue. I think there is a um, great article in there about why your CEO needs to understand the medical consequences of his being screwed up and allowing these patients to stay there. Because I truly believe that the CEO, if they wanted to fix his problem, would fix it in two weeks, period. But they don't. Um, no. So that's uh, that. A column was written by yours truly, by the way.
0: Yes, I understand that. <laughs>
1: um, so this this was an easy one. So she wants to leave after being in ED for eight hours. She's feeling better. She got her fluids. She got the insulin. All those kinds of things. And the ER doctor, who is clearly an idiot, says uh, she's signing out. And she says, uh, "What about the aftercare instructions?" The nurses say she doesn't get any. She is signing out. Now, we've covered that. That's
0: Yeah, that's, by the way, his actual name is Dr. Idiot. Dr. So, Idiot, uh, So yes. be
1: careful about that.
0: <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is, it's not my way or the highway. If they'll take half a loaf, give them half a loaf. Um, you always give them what you can. You always explain it in front of family members who knew you wanted to do something else. But uh, to take the, the point that he's not getting discharge instructions, that's just... That or, ain't right. Or that me- doesn't
1: recognize who we see. Or medicines, or antibiotics, for her pneumonia, or or, or whatever. The yeah. other case, crazy, is a 56 year old uh, male presents with a uh, moderate risk exertional chest pain, moderate for ACS. Who catches this is boarded in the ED due to a lack of inpatient beds. His ED roommate is described as being malodorous and unkempt. There are frequent monitor alarms going off all over the place. There's no privacy. And the, and the guy's got 19 wires on him monitoring this, that, and the other thing. And, the, and it's just a pain in the butt. And so he's there uh, in the ER. He informs the nurse that since nobody's doing anything anyway, I want to leave.
0: I, I'd like to say, by the way, we do nothing almost better than anybody else. I think we do it with a lot of pizzazz, a lot of style. Uh, Is there a lot of nothing going on? Yes, most of medicine is kind of entertaining the patient while nature takes its course. And we don't do things to you
1: all the time. Well, um, in this case, the patient, after a discussion with the emergency physician, signs a standard AMA form and leaves. So they basically want to view this as an opportunity for a discussion because it turns out that this person is more than competent. The risks are low, and this is clearly one of those cases where you kind of balance um, patient autonomy uh, and and risk. And frankly, in this case, that there was non-specific EKG changes, the troponin was marginally uh, marginally increased, if, if at all. Kind of. So there was all of this stuff suggesting that. Uh, <clears throat> Reasonable follow-up for this person would probably have been, been just just fine. But in any case, um, Greg, do you want to go through this thing where they're talking about managing patients without decision-making capacity? Yes. There's some it, stuff here. I, I must admit, I must admit, uh, we haven't discussed before.
0: Oh, well, let me let me just uh, take an interest of mine, which is medical ethics, and and just before we begin the discussion. Remember the four pillars that we always go back to. If you read Gertz or any of the Who? the current Gertz, one of the current it's philosophers. Like, is that when you get
1: pain in your, your esophagus no. from uh, acid coming up? No, that's
0: Gertz. Mm-hmm. This is Gertz. And he says there are four things, doesn't matter what field of medicine you're in, that run this. And it is the concept of respect for autonomy. Yes. The patient gets to be the patient. Number two, there is benevolence, which is our internal feeling that we know best and we have an obligation to sometimes foist things upon patients um, whether because we honestly believe we're doing the best thing for them. I don't think anybody does something to them thinking it's going to harm them, but, but we have to balance that act. He says there's the two other things that he wants to balance. One of those is justice, i.e., the the distributive properties of passing out health care, which are more of a political, social question. Uh, And then the last one is the entire concept of first do no harm, being able to look at everything we do and say,
1: hmm. Are they really better off <laughs> because I've Actually, forced this to them? I don't know. That's, that's really one of the m- major things that I've learned from reading this paper is that uh, everything we do has the potential for some harm mm-hmm. and there's a p- potential for some benefit. We don't call it, as Jerry Hoffman says, we don't call it any more risk and benefit. We call it harm and benefit. Uh, those are the two limbs of the equation. And particularly when a patient has a lack of capacity, you've got to be real, real careful about initiating treatment where there is a reasonable uh, likelihood of some harm being associated with, yes, there, it was primarily done for good, we expected good, but you know, we, we decided to do a catheterization of the coronary arteries in this person who is lacking capacity. Well, this so happens we blew out one of the coronary arteries, right. and, and there's a major gefuffle going on now. That's the the issue. in our
0: business, 90% of this is the question of restraint. Are you in some way going to keep them there for what's going on? And I honestly think that, that when we're at that level, remember, a few months ago, we reviewed a Supreme Court case in the state of New York, Kowalski. And that was the case that had to do with the guy who was not only intoxicated, but He was intoxicated, Uh, his blood alcohol was above the legal limit in New York, and yet the emergency people did their review of him, talked to him, answered questions, that sort of thing, and determined he had capacity, they let him go. Now, he went out and got into more trouble, but when the lawsuit came, the plaintiff obviously said, Kowalski said, well, they should have tied me down. The Supreme Court of New York said, no, they had no right to. In fact, if they'd done it with the capacity they documented, they would have uh, committed an assault and battery. So I I think that I I think that emergency doctors have to kind of keep that in mind, that the the question of of uh, who gets restrained and who doesn't ask this question. What would you do if it was your brother? What would you do if it was your sister? Because well, that's assuming
1: you like your brother and sister.
0: Well, that's, of <laughs> course. Uh, or they, and that your brother and sister wouldn't sue you. But the, uh, and so never make those assumptions. Well, you
1: know, there are some uh, little interesting bullet points that you've already kind of alluded to. Patients who have capacity can make bad decisions. That's, that's, that's clear. But once they have capacity, they're allowed to make bad decisions as long as you kind of tried to do the things that we just bulleted before about trying to make an effort to get them to stay, telling them the potential consequences, et cetera.
0: Last year in California, one quarter of the registered hang gliders (laughs) required medical attention. These are perfectly reasonable minds who've decided to do a, a crazy thing. You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, if, if God had wanted me to fly, I'd have been born with wings. Um, That's why why I take commercial airliners. Uh, But we allow people to do all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine a dumber sport than bull riding? And we let them do it. (laughs) That's crazy. That's
1: true. You know, one of the things that uh – is in this list of things regarding capacity is that we have an obligation to restore decision-making capacity. I was trying to think, well, what are some good examples of restoring decision-making capacity? Well, maybe that's a low blood sugar that was 30, which is now 90 and we've restored decision-making capacity. Right. Um, When about to undertake treatment in a patient without decision-making capacity, it is very important to weigh harms and benefits potentially against it. Well, I had mentioned that before that, Efforts should be made to locate surrogate decision-makers or to establish an advanced directive is in place. Stop. The most important person
0: in this process is not necessarily the patient. It's their family. They're the one, if he gets killed, is going to sue you. They're the ones who have had trouble dealing with this person at home. I I think that I've gotten more benefit in dealing with against medical advice patients from family members than I have from anybody else because... Because what they do is they'll grab Grandma when she wants to leave, and shake her and say, "Look, we brought you here for medical care." Uh, well, you know
1: I this think- is this is in the terms of a person who has uh, does not have capacity. Well, if a person doesn't have capacity, they're saying you should try to get a hold of the surrogates and uh, and ask you know how would they uh, expect this person to. Uh, 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 behave in this circumstance now you know do we necessarily do that i don't think we necessarily did it once we had a person who didn't have capacity and decided we needed treatment we'd go on on it and these people suggest not so fast there are some issues here that you may be overlooking like typically treatment of patients without capacity should focus on prevention of serious harm or death and the need is certified by two physicians in writing are you familiar with that
0: yeah well no i've heard of it but it certainly isn't uh, in the emergency department first of all most emergency de- of the four thousand emergency departments in the united states there's all kinds of them that have one doctor there in fact there are a lot of them now that have one pa there or one uh nurse practitioner there there
1: are some now that have nobody there nobody there. that's
0: the virtual pa and uh, god help us when that happens
1: but i think that it's really kind of interesting to um, take this uh, point of view that um, we need to look for, look, look for surrogates. We got to basically, uh, uh, we're, we're treating things to prevent serious bodily injury and harm or death. And this idea of certifying it, I think that if you're an ER that has two docs, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, the well, two of us I, got together. We both decided this person has, does not have capacity and we need to initiate this treatment. No, I, I would
0: not want to establish that as the standard of
1: care. Well, we never. I, I think, we I, I
0: think uh, we, I know we never do. We never establish a standard of care. nurse and a reasonable doc, if the two of them agree that this person's out of it and both write it down, I think we're okay.
1: But you know, uh, I don't think I would argue with their position that if you have two doctors, that it, that is a better way to go than just uh, th- than just having one do it. Uh, they also uh, say, "Yeah, you're a you're a belt and suspenders guy." Exactly. I can see
0: that right now.
1: Well, they also talk about there should be a hospital policy that should exist regarding the treatment of patients without capacity and the use of restraints or chemical sedation. Which is an extension of state uh, laws regarding dangerous to self or others. So I don't know. Uh, does your hospital have a policy with regards to establishing uh, lack of capacity and what you can do in those circumstances? Doesn't well, seem like not it was hurt. Not it. Only had that, but it also
0: had when you had to re-examine the patient to determine whether they still needed
1: restraints. Um, the nursing. Uh, oh yeah, staff yeah, had yeah. That Joint whole commission. Protocol. Yeah, Joint commission is very. Um, up on this um autonomy business and the rights of the patient and you know unnecessary restraint um that's for sure there that's one of their uh, hot buttons um, yeah. there's nothing i don't think really new here about elopement um but the the, the 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 gist of this article comes down to they say you should have a a consistent practical approach to the uh, dealing with these situations and they have a a um, mnemonic, A I M E D. What is that? I don't even know how to pronounce it. AMED. <laughs> amen, I guess, amen, amen, yes. amen. Amed, amed. Yeah, okay. that, basically that means uh, A is to assess. What well, we talked about: severity of illness, urgency of treatment, decision-making uh, capacity. And uh, to treat if, if uh, able and degree of risk of health and welfare, yeah, you can't be treating stuff that doesn't need to be treated when, they, when they're lacking capacity. You don't maybe need to suture them up right then and there. Maybe they should, you know, just get a dressing on and, uh, and, and, and wait till they get there with it if they're going to get with it. Um, well,
0: uh, number two is to investigate uh, why is the patient leaving? Well, if they're already gone, if they've eloped, you can't do that. You've got to look at their comfort measures, which you're giving. Yeah, that was uh, the second case. You know. This
1: guy basically is in a room with a, with a uh, malodorous person, got uh, no privacy, uh, bells going, whistles going off, he's got wires all over him. And, they, and, they, and they, when you read this article, they said, well, maybe we should try to make an accommodation for this. Maybe we should move the patient to a different, different spot. Maybe we should try to address some of these very legitimate issues that the patient's bringing up.
0: Yeah, well, they they mention that when they talk about what if you have reasonable suspicion that the patient is going to have a withdrawal syndrome, i.e., even if it's nicotine. I've had patients who are so addicted to nicotine, they said, Doc, I can't come into this hospital unless I can smoke. I said, guess what? We can put a nicoderm patch on your skin and, and do it early on so that uh, they realize that you are concerned about taking you care of You can put three or four process. of them on, you know? Yeah, three or four. No, no,
1: no don't do that. That's right. <laughs> and then this other thing here about, you know, ask the patient why you want to leave. They may have pressing, responsible child care, elder care, pet issues. and if Well, you... they always say, I've got a cat at home. Well, you know, you know, you know I think to, to many of us that, that sounds like a stupid kind of response, but the fact of the matter is many of the elderly are alone, Right. They're pets, you know, you and I both have pets, Greg, and you know we're very close to these animals, and so it's like you know it, it, it's it's kind of you know callous to kind of poo-poo that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is. Nope, uh, I was a sad guy when my dog died, uh, and but but what we can almost always do is get somebody to take care of those outside problems. We can we can I've actually sent the police to pick up kids at a bus stop when I had to admit their mother um, because she said they they got off in a bad neighborhood. Um, I can see that as a legitimate concern and fear. Sure. I see that. Yeah, that's that's all right. So we also want to mitigate uh, so uh, things as much as we can, that is offer treatment, which is acceptable to them. Uh, And if they'll take that, it's not everything, but who knows? Maybe they'll like it.
1: Uh, Provide necessary prescriptions. This is the idea of sending out somebody who's going out who may need um, medications for uh, an infection, who may need um, a beta blocker, or may need a... um, something that is physiologically going to help them. We don't want to necessarily kind of mute their symptoms by giving them, here's your Vicodin kind of thing, but um, something that would be physiologically appropriate to treat their condition. Um, Try to get them follow-up, like that cardiac case we talked about. We, We have spent a fair amount of time in another forum talking about Um, what is the reasonable approach to low-risk chest pain patients? And I can tell you there seems to be a growing uh, move that says we can define low-risk chest pain patients who can be discharged and be followed up, whether it be for a stress test or some other kind of thing. Not all of them need to come into the hospital and be admitted and monitored with wires and oxygen and all this other crap.
0: Yeah. Rick, we're good. We're not perfect and uh we have to we have to deal with the fact that this is where education of the patient is a huge obligation um are you bringing me in today uh no does anybody ever go home and die with this the answer is maybe one in a thousand over a period of uh a month and i i think we just need to be honest with some of that teaching
1: well isn't that basically giving numbers again that's this this idea about giving information which the patients going can, can rely upon uh to help make a decision. So if you say one in one in a thousand, you know, that, that okay, I can deal with that. I'm going to I'm leaving.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. I I have some who would leave with uh, much higher numbers than that. I, I think that you. um
1: I think that we've kind of gone through many of these things like um explain um the uh well, we we got that covered. Um we got, we've done all that already. <clears throat> About an alternative plan. You know, if you don't want to do this, well, plan B would be this. I don't, it's not quite as good. You've got appendicitis. <laughs> you don't want surgery. We're going to give you some high-dose antibiotics, and there's a reasonable chance we can get you through this. Not, it's not the ideal kind of thing, but this is an, op, uh, an option. So I,
0: th- if- I think the real core of this not only is checking capacity – But honesty with the patient and their family, I mean, a lot of these people have somebody with them. It's a mistake not to have those people in the room so they hear the discussion. But secondly, not only is honesty the best policy, but at least then, as you put things on the chart, we have some idea why you did what you did. Uh, You know, the medical degree is a license to heal, not a a cause for you to (laughs) inflict continuous pain and suffering. Uh, I'm glad we mentioned the NG tube because I can't think of an instrument which is more obnoxious than the NG tube and has shown so little benefit over the years in patients. In fact, it actually is not only an instrument of torture but it's probably led to a lot of uh, aspiration out of stuff. Yeah, you want to get somebody get
1: ready. You want to get rid of somebody in the ER. We need to put a two NG tubes down, one each down each nostril, you know, because we need a second opinion kind of thing. Um, yeah. Then there's all this business about documentation, you know, which is pretty straightforward. You've do- documented that you've done a medical screening exam, so you're dealing with the emtala elements of a patient leaving. You've checked the decision-making capacity. You've documented that. Discussions of initial treatment offered. Discussion of patient refusal and reasons why they're refusing. Efforts to negotiate, recruit the family and friends, as you mentioned. Alternative plans with risks and benefits. Discharge instructions, including when to return. Efforts to locate <laughs> if there's no discharge um, conversation. That's the low patient. And, and I think one of the most important things by far is to make it clear that the patient is welcome to come back at any time. That we're friends. We're here to help. You know, um, this is not my way or the highway, as, as you uh, as you noted. So um, I think that that is um, a review of almost suggested papers. We got a couple of cases, Greg. I listen, Greg. I have three cases of my own. I want to give you three. Oh. Three. All right. And well, I'm to tell I, you, we got about uh, 15 minutes. Well, and I haven't even done
0: wine of the month yet. So here, uh, let me give you a a court decision, which I think emergency physicians need to think about. I got a lot of those piled up. One of them is Ware versus Bronson Methodist Hospital. Bronson is here in the state of Michigan. uh, And this had to do with an unusual situation. Woman, Mrs. Ware, the ex-Mrs. Ware, brings an action against the hospital because her ex- husband's girlfriend works at the hospital, called up her records, uh, which had sensitive information on them. And then it became an embarrassing discussion in her divorce. Um, so naturally the, the Mrs. Ware sues the hospital saying your agent and servant, your employee, you owe me money because, uh, They got to my records without permission, blah, 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 and this hurt my life. It was interesting that this case uh, went to the uh, state, uh, the court of appeals, uh, agreed with the argument that said they didn't hire this woman, this girlfriend of the ex-husband, and tell her to do anything with these records. She was doing this out of her own maliciousness. She had nothing to do with her work at the hospital right. they said they what they said was hospital can't control that 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 you know if you want to bitch piss and moan and and we're not near in the position Bronson isn't in the position of Cedars where you are in l a uh at Cedars that's hospital to the stars for those who don't know who are listening. Uh, There's famous people coming in there every day to be treated. Calling up a patient's chart on someone you're not involved in is grounds for immediate termination. Yeah,
1: exactly. Zero uh, tolerance policy. They're, They're out. No discussion. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, but I just thought it was interesting that the uh, the courts, I think, made an interesting decision there, which is uh, there is there is no action against the hospital. After all, how can they know someone who's wor- you can, using the computer every day and, as was pointed out, they had no system, uh, there was no way she would know or, or, or she could be held from getting certain patient information? Well, you know, I
1: do think there is an obligation on the part of hospitals to advise all employees, uh, no matter who they are, regarding issues regarding patient privacy. And that's a generic kind of thing. It doesn't necessarily mean li- it's limited to access to the computer system. It's like, uh, you know, listening, um, uh, overhe- overhearing conversations in the elevator. You know, the paper, famous paper we did about elevator yes. talk. Yes, where they have yes, Doctors in the elevator and they're t- talking about all kinds of patient uh, confidential information to <laughs> – One out of every four trips up and down in that elevator, they
0: could identify the particular patient the the staff was talking
1: about. Let me do a case here, Greg. You're going to like this one. This is a known schizophrenic. This is an unbelievable case. A known schizophrenic patient was brought to an ED by ambulance with severe agitation. At the ED, the patient had to be restrained while given an injection for sedation. (laughs) <laughs> when the, the sedation the famous
0: war- Haldol blow dart,
1: right? Yeah. Exa- well, exactly, more or less. <laughs> they Actually, they should have not given the Haldol blow dart. That's what prevented this problem. When the sedation wore off, it was observed that the patient had lost function of his legs and that had only limited use of his hands and arms. Now, would that frighten the heck out of you? Oh, shit. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> a fracture of the neck was noted on X-ray, and the patient had a stormy course with multiple hospitalizations and recovery with only uh, limited limited function. It was claimed on behalf of the patient that the hospital staff applied a full, <laughs> <laughs> quote-unquote, full Nelson during the restraint. The hospital obviously denied it. Now, Remember, you know, the term full Nelson is kind of like not a term. Is this a, that's a term of your person, your age and my age when would we would, you know, then people would re-wrestling and they apply the Dick full Nelson. Dick the Bruiser, remember Dick the Bruiser? Well, you and know, these are the guys who did that sort of stuff, great. Right? Uh, even if it wasn't a full, even if it was a quarter Nelson, yes. uh, the uh, the settlement was 2.866 million dollars. Um, the guy comes in with agitation. I'm sure they were able to show that <laughs> he was moving all extremities when he was there. And that after the—can uh, you imagine? But the fact of the matter is, is we see these videos of cops taking down people on the street, you know, that black guy who was selling cigarettes in New York, the guy dies, you yeah. know, by yeah. being taken down. So the idea here is you need to know what you're doing when you when you restrain a person physically— the idea here is you're supposed to have one person on each extremity kind of thing. You know, the idea of suppress, you know, holding the neck or head or something like that, you know, you could get into some trouble. This guy broke his neck in the process of being restrained. Yeah, I
0: think, I think there's no question that uh, if I had to pass out some information, more is better. If you have lots of people, yes. people are likely to not get hurt. If it's you and the bad guy...
1: If it's you and the person who's swinging at you, somebody's going to get hurt. One of the most amateurish um, procedures is to sedate a person with an inadequate number of staff. That is just just—it's a given. It's just like yeah, right. you, you, basically you're ER 101. Oh, you, you, have a, you have a case?
0: Yes, I have a case, and you're not going to like this one. This had to do with failure to start antibiotics timely for a toddler diagnosed with possible meningitis. Uh, the, now, nothing bad could come from this case, right, Rick? Yeah, good. Uh, yeah okay. As soon as you uh, the, say the, the M word. Is, yeah, the kid is, um, you know, this is a two-and-a-half, three-year-old, uh, and this is a Cook County, Illinois case. How would you like to go to trial in Cook County, Illinois Oh, my God. It is one of the five hellholes of America, medically, legally. But in uh, Jacob Bush v. Sherman Hospital, Mr. Bush, when the child did badly, started talking about the fact, well, the doctors in the ER were seeing all kinds of other patients who were a lot less uh, sick than my child. And, and uh, we had to wait forever and ever and ever. The docs see the kid. (laughs) You'll love this. They diagnose problem meningitis. They call about getting the kid admitted. The physician wrote the order, according to the nurse, on a part of the chart that she doesn't usually check for the antibiotic. They go on to their other care. By the time this kid is actually in a room and the antibiotics are hung, it's now nine hours, Rick. Oh, nine hours. Wow. Um, now, I don't think there is a paper in the literature that says there's much difference whether they get it in three hours or nine hours. I don't know, but the closing argument was clear, pretty compelling. Doctor, would you like your child treated early or late? Just tell this jury, and that's that's the question that was asked in this case. Uh, even the doctor is sobbing on this one, uh, and as you might imagine, this is a this is a brain damaged kid who now needs custodial care, and they got ten point nine million dollars. Um, I can understand why this family is upset, and um, I know that I actually ha- have been crossed uh, on you know on a case by the plaintiff's attorney who did this. He's brilliant, he's just excellent, and. Uh, 9. How brilliant
1: do you have to be to, to say nine hours is not good for a brain infection?
0: Well, it's the way they present the case, Rick. A day in the life of this child, all this other sort of stuff. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. And they did a, uh, they did a marvelous job on it.
1: Hey, listen, you said that you uh, were involved in a case recently that got closed that you think is worthy of discussion. Because I, I have a couple more, but we can save them for next time. Okay.
0: Um, <clears> okay. <throat> I just finished a case,
1: uh, and
0: this is in uh, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, a, and it's a, uh, it's a stroke case. It's should TPA have been given case. What I'm really angry about is the amount of non-science it, which is being said by people. Uh, first of all, whenever an expert says in a stroke case, well, it's greater than not if they'd gotten TPA, they'd be better. There is no study where the outcome was like 80% good or 70% good. In the NINDS trial, they said 30% of people would be good and 20% um, uh,
1: would probably Actually, be I think it was 12% be got better and 6% got worse. Right, So 80, 88% got no benefit. In the ECAS
0: trial, it was a benefit maybe 7 or 8%. And I think at a certain point in time to let that stuff come out of people's mouths on the stand. Now, we won the case. 12-0, we won. But this doc, by the way, this case was seven years old because of certain problems going back and forth to the appellate court. This was seven years ago. It sounds like you're
1: bellyaching about the expert on the other side.
0: Well, the expert on the other side was a a, a lying poo-poo, and he said things. Uh, that he didn't understand the science. He wouldn't know a brain from his butt. And, Was it uh, an emergency
1: as, physicians? Turn him in.
0: Well, I'm telling you, we should not let this kind of stuff go unanswered. And I talked to the doc afterwards, and I said, look, you have an obligation here. I, You know, we just saved you- your ass. Now get out there and go after this guy, because I'll show up. I'll pay, I'll pay for it out of my pocket to fly to the... Uh, meeting in, in Dallas of the uh, ethics committee to take an action against this because this just isn't right. And, uh, you know, the judge, you can't expect him to know the rightness or wrongness of the science. He can't. Now, was this were they being set up for a Daubert challenge if necessary? Yes. But you know what? It's still money out of someone's pocket. And what I think is the worst thing is uh for those of you who haven't been sued, it is an ugly experience that, that 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 uh hurts your your entire life during that time you're under suit. Anyway, I had to get that off my chest. You so feel, feel better, better now? I feel better now.
1: All right, yeah. okay. All right.
0: I'm okay. You wanna do got another a, case?
1: Yeah, we got I wanna do a quickie. Last case. Twenty seven year old female uh goes to the doctor with a flu like illness. She is pregnant and uh, Things don't go well. she ultimately becomes hospitalized, she dies, and seven months later her child dies as well. The uh, family brings suit. The idea here is they were was a failure to diagnose influenza, and there was a failure to initiate uh, um, antiviral therapy now Unfortunately, the nuances of this case are we don't know you know whether how sick the patient was when she was initially seen. Well, when the hospitalization occurred. There, so there are some issues here. Um, I don't think most people, Greg, would um, arm wrestle you over not giving antivirals if you're sick enough to be hospitalized with the flu, uh, like, it, like has occurred in this case. So I don't know that that's, I don't know that the data is really particularly compelling that it's going to save your life but well to say that it's not
0: compelling rick is being overly kind but you know i'm i'm not going to fight you over that cuz uh, maybe a few people get admitted i bet very few pregnant women with a virus get admitted so we don't have the data on that but but i'll agree with you it is it is scientifically in limbo would you agree with that
1: yeah yeah but i i Yes, that may be true, but, but given the fact that we have so little that we can use in these cases that uh, throwing some antivirals at these patients seems like a reasonable and prudent kind of thing to do, ultimately, there is a three-point-some-million-dollar settlement as a result of having two dead people. Whether that could have been prevented or not is another matter. Anyway, that's le- that's the end of our cases, Gregory.
0: Well, thanks, Rick. Uh, these are an interesting series of cases, and I'll tell you, we haven't gotten to a tenth of them that I got backed up here. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, Graham Billingham next month. We got cases that are going to take us well into the summer here, Guy.
1: We've got good stuff coming up. Greg, you yep. want to do a little wine of the month? We have about uh, three minutes left. Ooh, you, you You can't.
0: Believe Rick, how many great cases I got backed up here? And by the way, well, we'll, that, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them. We'll get to them, but they have our friends in them. Remember our attorney who was an emergency doc in oh, California, yeah. Bruce yeah, Fagel? Bruce, Bruce, yeah, yeah. Well, he he was the guy who got one of the big decisions in this past month, and uh, it was like uh, ten million bucks. And it's uh, if I read the case to you, you'll be uh, you'll understand why. All right. Here we here we here we're going again. Um, I am can't tell you how much uh, people are thinking about the last two three years in California. The Reds, they have just done terrifically. Is that the baseball go- team, the Reds? Yeah, the Reds. Right. The Reds, and uh, again, you don't have to spend a lot of money. Uh, I know we started this out when Mel was with the program that. You know, he wasn't going to pay any more than $7.50 a bottle. So the only thing he could drink was that Australian Yellowtail or whatever it is. But I want to give you at least two wines that are just, these things are unbelievable. And the price, it it couldn't be better. One of those is uh, Chateau Saint-Jean, the 2013s. uh, And they have two wines there, a magnificent uh, Pinot Noir uh, from the Russian River, a lot of these places have various acreages that they take their grapes from. But this one is considered a high-class top wine, twenty-two bucks a bottle. And this isn't this isn't characters running around who have their nose up their butt and will only drink French wine, you know that sort of thing. These are guys who drink it from all over the world, and they say uh, this is this is one of California's. Great Wine Bargains. So again, Chateau Saint-Jean, and uh, enjoy it. You'll love it.
1: Okay. Okay, Greg, we have, uh, we're have we right at the uh, time limit here. We've got some great uh, coming uh, issues down the, uh, in, the, in the pipeline. Um, um, Mike Weinstock and uh, Graham Billingham, and uh, I'll see you, buddy, in about two weeks. In I'll have a Mai Tai with you. Yeah, aloha, Rick. Okay, take care.